Well, thank you, brothers and sisters, for coming to worship tonight, despite the fact that I'll be opening up God's Word to you. I told David I would focus on saying good things and see how long it took me to run out of good things to say. And I think some of you enjoy a little bit shorter evening service, so this might be your lucky night. Sometimes confession is good for the soul, and I'm confessed to you, I'm concerned that I speak the truth to you tonight. I'm a big thinker, and I'm a big talker, but I don't always do those things together. Um, I reflected this morning that there's quite a bit of farm work I'm more comfortable with than standing up here, but the good news is that God's strength is made perfect in weakness. So I will press on in weakness tonight. If you will turn to your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 18, I'd like to start reading to you in verse 10. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Let's pause for a minute and ask the Lord for blessing. Father in heaven, we pray this evening that your word would be understood and effective. Please open my lips to speak your truth, and please give us ears to hear. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Amen. It so happens that I've not ever really searched for a church. Uh, When I went uh, to college, uh, Abigail's and James's mother was going to a church, and I went to church with my sister. And uh, when I moved here, I came here. So I've not spent a lot of time church hunting. Uh, Perhaps you've heard, though, in some of your searches for a church, maybe you've heard about the three marks of a faithful church. Maybe you've had cause to search for a faithful church, and you decided on some criteria you were looking for, maybe more than just how thick the uh, cushion on the pew is or how good the coffee is. Um, Three of the classic marks you may have heard of a faithful church are faithful preaching of the word, good doctrine, right administration of the sacraments, and then faithful administration of church discipline, which focuses on the purity of the church. 
each of these three are obviously a study in themselves. But I've done some reading recently on church discipline, trying to understand the teaching of Scripture and the principles behind it more fully. As an elder at Redeemer, I have a role to play, and I should understand it well. While I've looked at several resources on this, I want to really recommend J. Adams' book, A Handbook of Church Discipline. I've been very blessed by it, and I assure you that the best thoughts you hear tonight are probably his thoughts from his book. When I began this study, my perception of church discipline was probably more akin to the Queen of Hearts in Alice of Wonderland. Uh, You may be familiar with her catchphrase, off with her head, or his head, or whoever's head, just cut it off. And unfortunately, if all you have is an axe, the solution to every problem is to cut off. The most visible part of church discipline happens at the very end, when all the other steps of church discipline have failed. And the purity of the church, going back to our marks, has to be maintained. I think we would all agree that if a man marries his father's wife and is a member in good standing at Redeemer Church, there's probably a problem there. Probably the same problem that the Corinthian church was faced with when they had that situation. So sometimes, mercifully rarely, there is a somber end to the church discipline process. Although the process can end with cutting off, thankfully that's not the only tool that God has left us with. Unfortunately, what he has left us with is much more demanding but at the same time, much more hopeful. I try to take notes in church, and as I wrote my uh, message tonight, I tried to give you all some headings. So my first heading here is, why do we do church discipline? Hebrews 12 says, Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Here we have the goal of church discipline, peaceable fruit of righteousness. This fruit does not grow easily. There is pain to attain it, and the tree must be trained to achieve it. This is the goal, not to cut off, but rather to encourage, to admonish, to assist for the fruit of righteousness. To emphasize this point, I began our text tonight at verse 10, and Steve alluded to the nature of a shepherd in the church. Here we have the classic picture of a shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep in search of the one lost sheep. Sheep apparently have this tendency to just kind of wander off and lose themselves. And all of Jesus' hearers would have connected viscerally with this. They probably had been out at night looking for a sheep, listening for their sheep, or listening to the wolves who were pursuing their sheep. The toil of searching, finding the sheep, and returning into the flock, and hoping when you get there that indeed the other 99 are still where you left them. Have you considered how it is that Jesus does that? Jesus has ascended on high. He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. What hands does he use to retrieve his sheep? 
They're your hands. They're my hands. We are not a loose collection of individuals who have all joined together in a sporting event or a a symphonic uh, music performance. We're in relationship with one another. We are members of a body, each tasked with our own gifts to serve the other parts. As we unpack the various stages of church discipline, you will see how important your role is to the other parts of the church, to your brothers and sisters. As we move into the verses that instruct us how to recall a brother, I don't want to miss the fact that the clear context of this passage is not to cut off, but that the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. I don't know about you, but that's a much happier picture than the one that I had. Our attention during this series, um, which given at the rate I teach might last 10 years, uh, will be more proportional to the real use of the other steps so that we can enjoy all the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So what is church discipline? From the passage in front of us, We can start in verse 15, and we can gather the following steps for what to do if a brother is in sin. We will talk at length later about how to decide um, that they're in sin. That's in part two someday. So the first step is we're going to go to our fellow believer privately and explain uh, their sin. If they won't hear you, then you're going to take a third party or two with you to witness your admonition and to join with you in urging repentance. And if they will not hear both of you, then you're going to take them to the church. Again, we'll explore this a little bit more later, but this would typically mean coming to the elders first and then to the larger body. And if they will not even hear the church, then you will take them out of the church and into the world. They are cut off from the body of Christ. I want to note, though, it's important to to remember that even this step is intended for their ultimate redemption. By making their true state clear to them, their peril is also made clear. Now, the context of the passage is that Jesus is talking about how to save a lost sheep. He's not talking to a sheep about how not to get lost. He's, He's talking about how to go get a sheep. But what if a sheep could get better at not getting lost? Jay Adams asserts another key principle at the front of these four points uh, that addresses this question. He wisely suggests that the first step of church discipline is self-discipline. And that's where we're going to spend the majority of our time tonight. So I want you to make sure you see this. You can imagine a a triangle starting here. It's very narrow at this point. And this is self-discipline. This is stage one. And then it gets a little wider. Now there's two people involved. This is one-to-one discipline. You notice in the passage it says, just go to that person yourself. And now it gets a little bit wider, and you've got more, two or three people involved, Uh, and then it broadens a little bit further to where it has the church involved, and then at the widest point, now you have 
the world, in that sense, involved. There's a confidentiality to church discipline where we minimize the number of people involved. And those first three steps, personal discipline or or, um, self-discipline, one-to-one discipline or two-to-one discipline, those are all informal steps. And that's where we want to see most church discipline happening. And it's only when we get to the church and then to the world where we have taken formal steps of church discipline, which is probably what we think of more often when we think of church discipline. So I'm going to switch gears now and I'm going to look at self-discipline or self-control. be another way of saying that. Now the shrewd ones out here are going to note that if this message is supposed to be expository in nature, that I've just moved to a topic that's clearly not covered in my primary text. It's true, you got me, but now I'm going to do a bait and switch. Uh, We're going to turn a little further in your New Testament. We're going to go to Galatians chapter 5, and I'm going to start reading in verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This passage gives us direction for how to live in the Spirit. How to recognize the difference between someone who is seeking God and one who is not. It is also the passage that most closely gives us this concept of self-control. The sense of this word is to have a hold or to have a grip. Perhaps you've told somebody, get a hold of yourself, or you better get a grip on yourself. The concept is a person who has control of their passions, control of their habits, etc. Indeed, if we look back at the passage uh, we just read, it's essentially split between those who do not have control of themselves and those who do. We see adultery, fornication, lewdness, sorcery, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, heresies, envy, murders, as opposed to love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness. We see a similar concept uh, highlighted. I'll just read this to you from 1 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul says, If you instruct the brethren in these things... You will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. But reject profane and old wise fables and exercise or discipline yourself towards godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of which is to come. So self-discipline 
in the Bible is submitting our will to the Lordship of Christ and bringing all things in our life under his feet. In doing so, we gain control of our passions and exercise or discipline ourselves toward godliness. So if that is what we mean by saying self-discipline or self-control, why would we say it's important? If we look at uh, early uh, founding fathers, uh, y'all will be familiar with this quote from John Adams. Our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. He wasn't the only founding father to have that view. James Madison wrote that our constitution requires sufficient virtue among men for self-government. Otherwise, nothing less than the chains of despotism can restrain them from destroying and devouring one another. Our founding fathers understood that a self-disciplined person is the foundation of a peaceful and prosperous nation. Likewise, the body of Christ is made up of brothers and sisters in various stages of seeking the Lord and learning to deny sin and grow in righteousness. The second stage of church discipline happens when someone rightfully and prayerfully observes a wayward brother and inquires after their spiritual well-being, their spiritual discipline. The question essentially becomes, are you losing your grip? And the goal is for that wayward brother to recognize that they are off track, that they have indeed lost hold, and to reassert God's truth in their life, to discipline themselves to godliness. So everything starts and ends with each of us, me, you, those people back there, all of us pursuing God and disciplining ourselves for the purpose of godliness, as we see in Timothy 4, 1 Timothy 4, 7. Now, as I consider this idea of self-discipline or self-control, I worried somewhat that calling everyone to get a better grip on yourself could have some unintended consequences. In Jesus' day... Who would you say had the best grip of all time on themselves? Who was so focused on every jot and tittle that they tied their mint and their cumin? Well, of course, this was the Pharisees, the most God-seeking Jews of their day. This is a little distressing because Jesus had some pretty harsh things to say about the holiness of the Pharisees, didn't he? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees whitewashed tombs or sepulchers, nice-looking on the outside, but dead on the inside. Is this what we're called to do when we try to be self-disciplined? My fear is that you will interpret a call to self-control as a call to look the part, to put on your piety mask, at least when you're at church. Most of my squirmy children are in Florida today, So I don't have to worry about looking bad when my kids whisper too much or go to the bathroom too much. But I can still worry about how I'm perceived, what I'm wearing, how my kids represent me in Sunday school. Uh, I can 
hide my struggles with my time to meditate on God's word and pray, my failures to love my wife as Christ loved the church, to manage my home or even manage my attitude. I can whitewash the whole thing for a few hours at least and I can look like I have it all together, in control, cool as a cucumber. I don't think whitewashing who we are to look apart, to appear a certain way, is what we're called to do. Certainly, we do not want to be condemned along with the Pharisees. Remember, Christ came for the sick. He didn't come for the well. I think we want to be numbered among the sick. So while I encourage you to discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, I want to emphasize that this is deep and holistic, not simply looking the part. Instead, we should seek to understand how to build relationships with our brothers and sisters so we can apply the teaching in James 5, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Instead of putting on a mask to hide a rotting interior, we harness the prayers of our fellow believers to be sanctified from our core. So how do I do this? What is it I'm asking you to do? How do we pursue self-discipline? Let's go back to our passage in Galatians. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. This statement is telling us to die to ourselves and live to Christ. There is no formula or law that you can follow and be righteous and holy while also being selfish and self-focused. The Pharisees robbed their parents of their support by making their wealth Corbin. They prayed loudly for the praise of men. Jesus turned our worldly concept of greatness on its head when he said the greatest among us is him who serves. Are you pursuing your relationship with God? Are you pursuing your Savior in surround sound? He's given us his word. He's given us prayer, meditation, public worship, fellowship, fasting, Now we have podcasts, we have books, we have preaching. Where is your heart? As Christ says in Matthew, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if you sat down with a play-by-play of your day, I'm not sure who would follow you and write that down, but let's assume that you'd had a play-by-play of your day, would it convince you that you're in pursuit of the most important relationship in your life? Are you saturating your mind and your heart with the God of the universe? Like the wise man, if your house is built on the rock, when the rains come down and the floods come up, your house will stand firm. Your self-discipline will rest on the right foundation and on the Holy Spirit, your helper who's enabling you to get a grip. One of the books that I love on this to get some practical help is The Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life. 
This is officially an oldie but goodie. Um, and I recommend it to you, Donald Whitney. So as I conclude our discussion, I recognize that we've only scratched the surface of this topic, as I knew that we would. We have broadened our understanding of what the whole process of church discipline looks like, the informal and the formal. And we have come to understand the essential role that our individual pursuits of godliness play in the spiritual walk of the whole church. In the marriage enrichment course that I helped to lead, Reengage, we have a chapter on completion. The core concept of that chapter is that I, as Bright's husband, have a role in making her more like Jesus. And she does for me. After 14 weeks of learning how our past impacts our present, how to talk, how to fight, how to love, we get this sucker punch at the very end that explains that we learned all these things not to make our marriage better, but to make us more like Christ. And if I see sin in Bright's life, I need to tell her about it. This chapter scared me so bad the first time we did it. I still have PTSD from it. It hit me like a ton of bricks that in order for me to tell Bright how she isn't conformed to Christ, I need to really, really know Christ. If I don't know the genuine article, I won't know the fake. And for me to approach her with the log out of my eye, I really have to be humbled before God and in relationship with him. And I've spent my life snowing the teacher, giving answers that sounded good and got me by, but there's no way to fake this until you make it. This takes discipline. Bright is my closest Christ follower, but I have responsibilities towards the whole body as well. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. You and I are in relationship, and we have a God-given responsibility towards each other. That ups the ante. That increases the pressure. God has made it so that we have a communion of saints, not ruggedly individualistic saints. This five-step process of church discipline is a recipe for a healthy, engaged, Christ-following church that is helping one another to pursue holiness. When you pray for this church, please pray that we will embrace first a personal pursuit of holiness and then a faithful and compassionate service to one another. Let's pray together now. Father in heaven, in your covenant love for you people, you have provided for us in every way. You have given us your holy and inspired word to teach us your ways. You have sent your Holy Spirit to be a helper to us. And Lord, you have given us your people to love us and to sharpen us to godliness. We pray that each of us here would begin again in our pursuit of you 
in order that we might participate in your work to serve one another. Send us away this night with joy and with fervency. In Christ's name we pray.